0: But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Science of Genesis Paradise Lost series, posted April 6th, 2018, titled Part 2, Let There Be Land. Well, hey there. Uh, we got a few more minutes until you guys get to experience Genesis, so uh, I need something for you guys to do. Hey, Ralph! Yo! The vision of this film, what are you hoping to accomplish? We're trying to show that the Bible is true, but also the science to back it up. If we're going to have a debate about science, can you please just be honest about it? Follow presents The Science of Genesis, Paradise Lost Part 2, Let There Be Land If you're new to the series, click on the I in the top corner to watch from the beginning. The movie shifts from a wise warning against brainwashing into the first sequence of 3D animation, illustrating the words of narrator Vodi Bauckham, reading Genesis chapter 1 word for word from the King James Version of the Bible. The animators caught a bit of a break that most of day one was in the darkness. It is day two where the film had to make some creative and scientific choices.
1: And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament.
0: While I'm not entirely sure what the swirls of water represent, and there's plenty of ambiguity, Eric Hoven's animation team chose to depict the firmament described in Genesis 1 as clouds or atmosphere. The idea that the firmament could be interpreted as the clouds was first popularized in 1554 by John Calvin. Prior to this, Hebrews held that the sky was a solid dome with the sun, moon, and stars embedded within it. Revered church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, St. Augustine, and Thomas Aquinas all affirmed this solid dome plain reading interpretation. When John Calvin proposed the idea that the firmament meant the atmosphere and clouds, it was part of the divisive Copernican revolution and a controversial new doctrine of accommodation, which taught that the writers of Scripture were free to use scientific phrases and concepts consistent with the times at which they wrote and that modern readers are free to reinterpret these phrases in light of modern understanding. There are some people that approach the biblical text today, and they view it through the lens of modern scientific interpretations. It is interesting that Genesis Paradise Lost would be so anti-Calvin when it comes to 24-hour days and order of creation, but embrace Calvinist principles when it comes to the firmament. Is Genesis supposed to be poetry? Is it supposed to be an allegory? If allowed here... Why can the rest of the chapter not be allowed theological accommodation? The Bible clearly says that God created in 6 literal days just like our days uh, about 6000 years ago. No one can say that the Hebrew word yom doesn't mean a 24-hour day.
1: From God's perspective it's a day. From our perspective Gersh, it's what, It could be a billion years. So the 6 days of creation needn't be much different. They can indeed be Allegory. God created days on the fourth day. So we got three of these uh, yoms which are not of the 24 hour. To argue that the world was created in six days equals six days is something that is asinine to even begin to discuss.
0: If you try to make that order of the events of the creation week match with evolutionary principles, it can't. It does seem incompatible. Here is the biblical order of creation. Considering only the items listed, the naturalistic view holds that the stars existed first, then our sun, all before the earth. Plants are okay there. Water creatures can be first, but the whales are descended from land creatures, as are birds. That said... Some read Genesis 1 from the perspective of the Earth, so that the finally clear atmosphere revealed the sun, moon, and stars on day four, even though they existed prior. Many have found various ways to reconcile this for themselves. Something you can research if you're interested. If the days were really bazillions of years... Bazillions? Really, Charles? Statements like this make it difficult not to treat everything you say as hyperbole. When are you being literal, and when are you being figurative?
1: In 1859,
0: Charles Darwin published On the Origin
1: of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life, a book that proposed a new theory on how life came to be
0: on planet Earth. Throughout the film, the animators inserted floating labels which give additional written commentary as an addendum to what the voiceover is saying. In this case, the text actually corrects the narration error that Darwin's Origin of the Species attempts to explain how life came to be on planet Earth. The written text correctly identifies origin of life as a biogenesis, where evolution merely attempts to explain the diversity of life. It is entirely possible that God could create the first life, and nothing would have to change about Darwin's theory. However. The text misrepresents modern evolutionary theory that biodiversity has arisen from kinds magically changing into other kinds. Rightly or wrongly, evolution specifies that the entirely natural, well-observed, well-documented processes of genetic mutation and natural selection, among others, are sufficient to explain the diversity of life we see today. Scientists may well be putting too much stock in these natural processes, but natural processes are what they claim. One might look at this clip of animal creation from later in the film and describe the process being shown as magical. But certainly the film creators would insist that describing creation as magic would be a misrepresentation it is probably a poisoning of the well word best left out of any investigation and discussion. Darwin was strongly
1: influenced by Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. Lyell, also influenced by others, reinterpreted geologic history through gradual processes over millions of
0: years, a concept known as uniformitarianism. What the film is describing here is better described as gradualism. Geologists today typically do not hold to strict gradualism. In modern usages, Uniformitarianism more accurately refers to the unchanging nature of the laws of physics, that the chemistry and physics observed today are the same as those that acted in the past. This view was contrary to catastrophism, which teaches that Noah's flood can explain much of what we find in the geologic record. Broadly, catastrophism is the theory that changes in the Earth's crust during geological history resulted chiefly from sudden, violent, and unusual events. Before 1860, it made sense to try to explain unusual features with unusual events, like volcanoes, earthquakes, tornadoes, or flooding, but only a subset of catastrophists felt that it was a single, worldwide flood. Modern geologists hold a blended view, that Earth's history is explained by slow, gradual processes, punctuated by occasional catastrophic events, but also that the catastrophes were caused by, operated within, and can be understood entirely in the context of unchanging laws of nature. So, uniformitarianism still holds across the board. Lyell's motivation was to, quote, free the science from Moses, end quote. This quote from Charles Lyell expressing a desire to free the science from Moses is from a letter he wrote in 1830 to George Poulet Scrope, his peer reviewer for submissions to Quarterly Review. In the letter, and others like it preserved from the time, Lyell described the length to which the members of the church were attempting to suppress his scientific findings because they conflicted with their religious beliefs. Lyell wrote, "'Old Reverend John Fleming is frightened and thinks the age will not stand my anti-mosaical conclusions, and at least that the subject will, for a time, become unpopular and awkward for the clergy. But I am not afraid.'" Lyell didn't set out to undermine the Old Testament, but merely took an exception when the few Christians with a specific dogmatic interpretation of the Bible blocked him from publishing his observation and findings. Since it was the book of Moses being used against science, he naturally wanted to free the science from the book of Moses. Given that the first segment of the movie had complaints about ideological suppression... The secularists, the atheists, they took control of science. They took control of all the science journals, all the university science programs. They've taken over the museums, they've taken over the state schools, they've taken over the universities. It's strange that it would quote a letter about 19th century Christians doing the same thing. Anytime anyone uses a quotation, including a Bible verse, it's always a good idea to check the original context for meaning their ideas would soon transform the culture
1: from one that largely trusted in the biblical account of history.
0: It was James Usher whose analysis of chronologies in the Bible popularized the primary assertion of this movie that the universe is approximately 6,000 years old. So it's strange that the movie has Moses born in 1526 when Usher has Moses born in 1571. Still others propose dates like 1391. Even more scholars, including Jewish ones, doubt that Moses was a historical figure at all. The precise dating used here is bold. The only actual matter in the universe is the earth at the time, standing in and out of water. Perhaps it was water that the earth was made from, and water was actually the first substance that God actually made. Of course, if there is a creator God, he could have used any process. But from all indications, the earth is the result of coalescing and clumping of dense materials that settled into the core, lighter materials that make up the crust, and gases that acted as the early atmosphere. I could not find any creation proposal for how liquid water, or its component hydrogen and oxygen, would be natural precursors to our varied planet. Charles does not assert this idea strongly or as evidence, so we'll move on. The third day, God then brings forth the dry land. He raises up the land surface, so now you have the first continent. Probably only one continent says he gathered the waters together to one place, which suggests that in the early Earth, there was one landmass.
1: It wasn't until the 1960s that geologists began to widely accept continental drift, a supposedly new idea that proposed the continents of Earth had broken up at some time in the
0: past and slowly drifted apart. Plate tectonics theory was nearly as earth-shaking no pun intended, and now fundamental to geology, as genetics is to biology. The continents are currently observed to be drifting at a rate of a few inches per year, though evidence shows Earth's continental history is more like the animation shown than the linear split the movie portrays. The film describes this as a slow drift, but even this so-called slow rate continues to be powerful enough to be continuously raising mountain ranges at the collisions, like currently rising Mount Everest, And rip current continents apart with massive earthquakes along San Andreas Fault in the U.S. and the Great Rift Valley in Africa. Just one continent split up, we believe, during the flood later on.
1: It was also a tectonic catastrophe. Large-scale plate motion. Migration of the continents by thousands of miles.
0: Ignoring the indirect path geologists find evidence for, and assuming the straight-linear Pangaea split to current positioning that the movie proposes happened in the one year of the flood the Americas would have traveled at a rate of over 12 miles, 20 kilometers, per day. This is over a million times faster than continents move today. If you increase the speed of a marathon runner by a million times, they could achieve escape velocity, not only of the Earth, but even escape the gravity of the Sun. If you increase the speed of a sloth by a million times, that sloth is going faster than the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. If you increase the speed of a snail by a million times, It would move faster than the speed of the space shuttle blasting off. As the continents move, they leave a trail and path from where they rip open the ocean floor. These seafloor gaps become sealed and healed with uprising magma that cools to form new crust, almost like geological scar tissue. Precise geological dating aside, the relative age of the rock that formed to fill the ocean floor gap is gradual. If the film is correct, the full length of the scar left by thousands of miles traveled during the flood year should be approximately the same age, with the fraction of a mile of drift since the flood appearing younger. If there had been a single year geological rocket acceleration, the trail left behind would show signs of this, but it does not. This is a concept that the Bible already revealed. Thousands of years earlier,
1: Genesis 1-9 states that God gathered together the waters unto one place, and then he made the dry land appear. What the Bible had stated all along, that the lands were once connected and then split apart, geologists started teaching thousands of years later. Genesis 1 verse 9
0: says, Let
1: the waters under the heavens. Gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear.
0: So, to say that the lands were once connected is reasonable inference. However, the Bible doesn't say that the lands split apart. We know about continents now, but the authors of Genesis did not. To say that Genesis is consistent with continental drift is to apply Calvin's doctrine of accommodation, allowance of reading scriptures in light of current scientific knowledge, to the text. Again, if Eric's movie is okay with accommodation on plate tectonics and firmament as the clouds, why not other knowledge? The line seems arbitrary. Additionally, Genesis 1 verse 10 seems to contradict a single landmass.
1: And the gathering together of the waters, called he,
0: seas. Already on day three, there are multiple seas. Some apologists will interpret this as inlets into the one landmass. But in the past, this was interpreted in the context of the continents always being where they are today. The point being that even Eric's movie picks and chooses which arbitrary way to harmonize natural observations and Genesis interpretation. The flood was an incredible catastrophe, almost beyond what the human mind can comprehend. This is a catastrophic event of unimaginable proportions. It's almost like the surface of the earth screams at us, hey, there was a catastrophic event. As we discussed earlier, geological catastrophes are an integral part of all geological models. But all sophisticated study reveals countless catastrophes of varying sizes including massive volcanoes, ice ages, asteroid strikes, and yes, even floods. Distinct floods of different sizes in different locations at vastly different times. In fact, the U.S. Geological Survey compiled a list of the world's largest floods in the past 15,000 years and the evidence for them. They all left significant impacts, but none were global. If something like that happened, what sort of evidence should that have left behind? That's a really good question. Naturally, geologists have been studying local floods for centuries, and one consistent marker of a rapid rush of large amounts of water is diluvium deposits. These are massive ripple marks, from 2 to 20 meters tall, with wavelengths of up to 300 meters. Think the ripples in sand on a beach, but on a massive scale. First studied in the 1900s by J. Harlan Bretts and Joe Parody in Lake Missoula, these ripples are found in Asia, Europe, North America, and even on Mars, the presence of which were the first clear indicators of water there, which the movie will affirm momentarily. But these ripples are not found around the globe, which is just one thing a geologist would expect if the flood of Genesis had taken place. Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. I laughed when they gave Ken Ham's catchphrase to another speaker, They gave me the unexpected in a section about expectations. Of course, the flood that Genesis described would have killed a lot of creatures, but it would have done so all at once. During a single event, the sedimentary layer that is laid down forms a single layer, with graduated sorting by density and buoyancy. But that is not what we see. We see distinct layers with distinct ecosystems. No modern creatures in the lower layers, and ancient creatures disappearing in the upper layers. No exceptions. The film even chooses to depict this in a representation of the geological column. These distinct layers are not what one would expect to see in a flood, but rather a single layer of fossils covering the entire planet.
1: The Bible tells us of a worldwide flood that radically changed the climate and devastated the continents, thousands of years
0: before scientists would even propose ice ages. As Answers in Genesis will tell you, the Bible doesn't say, and then there was an ice age and they affirm that biblical creationists have not reached a consensus on one Ice Age model. When the film claims that the Bible specifically predicts an Ice Age, they are engaged once again in the Calvin principle of accommodation, of reading modern science into their textual interpretation. Of course, this is acceptable, But why be inclusive of some observations and not others? The irony
1: being that these same scientists would confirm the possibility of great global floods on planets like Mars and yet still deny a global flood was possible
0: on Earth. This phrasing is almost identical to this 2007 article by Andrew Snelling, who notices that most geologists today vehemently oppose any suggestion that in the Earth's past that there were cataclysmic outbursts of water that flowed catastrophically across its surface as the Global Genesis Flood, even though the planet Earth is still 70% covered in water. But of course, geologists strongly affirm cataclysmic outbursts of water in the Earth's past. I pointed out the long list from the U.S. Geological Survey, which is only a fraction of the floods acknowledged in history. However, the evidence doesn't affirm a single flood at a single time. The suggestion has been heard, but not found to be supported. Snelling continues. Yet they are equally adamant that the surface of nearby planet Mars has in the past been cataclysmically covered in water, even though most of its surface is now dry. This phrase, surface covered in water, or great global flood on Mars, as the film puts it, are entirely disingenuous. In the very paragraph before, Snelling acknowledges that Mars has in the past been covered by huge volumes of water which spread over vast areas not spread over the whole surface, but vast areas. And by vast, scientists mean perhaps up to one-third of the surface at once, never anything close to the entire surface. So Snelling's article, and subsequently the movie, misstate the scientific claims about Mars in order to appeal to common sense, and their final false assertion that the conceptual possibility of a global flood hasn't been considered. When this concept has been evaluated and weighed against evidence for hundreds of years, finding insufficient evidence is not the same as failing to consider a possibility. A person who acknowledges that Bernie Sanders is not currently president of the United States likely still considered it to be a conceptual possibility at some point. While the narrator made an emotional appeal to common sense, the film's label for Mars included an extra claim as a visual Easter egg, Mars. Approximately six thousand-year-old planet, the impact basin Hellas, Mount Alba Patera, and the Tharsis plateau, evidence a young surface. While brief and vague, it appears this claim is referencing this article from Answers in Genesis: Mars, A Testament to Catastrophe, from 2008. It references three geological features on Mars: Hellas, Mars's largest impact crater, the size of half of the continental U.S.; Mount Alba Patera, Mars's largest volcano by surface area and the Tharsis Plateau, the largest known volcano in the entire solar system. The article hypothesizes that merely because these features are relatively close together, the relationship between these gigantic features is unlikely to be a result of chance, suggesting a cause-and-effect relationship between them. This implies a global Martian geological catastrophe comparable in scale to the Genesis flood. The author's conjecture is that such a large asteroid hit could have set off the big volcanoes. Researchers have reasons to believe that this is not the case, but for the sake of argument, how would asteroid-caused volcanic eruptions indicate that Mars is 6,000 years old? Well, if one assumes that the Earth's impact craters came during the Flood, then Mars's impact crater probably happened during the Flood as well. While this may be an interesting idea or a hypothesis, this is simply not evidence. One cannot assume the age of something and then in the same breath call that assumption evidence. Assume X equals 100, therefore, X equals 100. In a significant understatement, the article admits, the model presented here is a starting point. More research is needed, not only in the areas mentioned. This kind of wishful dating method is the sort of thing the film accuses mainstream science of doing. Creationists should avoid such circular reasoning if they are to have the high ground.
1: You see, the Bible already stated there was a worldwide flood, and they don't want to validate the Bible. They'll come up with any other
0: explanation but the truth. We definitely don't want to be accepting ideas, or rejecting ideas, on the basis of preconceived conclusion. I hope we can all agree that evidence should come first, and then a conclusion should follow. Next on The Science of Genesis Paradise Lost Part 3, Stretching the Heavens Tap the subscribe button and the bell icon so you don't miss it. If you'd like to support the work of Palagio, please consider becoming a patron at the link in the description. Thanks for watching.